God is more magnificent than you know. He's more magnificent because of His unlimited sovereignty, because of His incomparable glory, because of His approaching just wrath, and because of His matchless grace. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Do you ever question whether or not the very earth beneath you is real or not? Of course you don't. But have you ever wondered, indeed perhaps been taught or told by others, that heaven is just a made-up myth? Is it possible to know the truth? Well, hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part two of his current series titled, He is Worthy. Believe it or not, what is real and true is constantly being redefined and reimagined by fallen and fallible human beings, both those from history and those from today. But what God says through the scriptures never changes and is the source of all real truth. This is also true regarding heaven and you can have certainty in full assurance that heaven is as real as the earth and will not be destroyed or ever cease. Do you believe that today, Christian? Keep all that in mind now as we join Tom Pennington on The Word Unleashed. When you consider the Jasper Stone, the modern Jasper Stone is is an opaque stone. But in chapter 21, verse 11 of Revelation, this same stone is described as crystal clear. And so many expositors, and, and I would have to agree, say this is likely a diamond. As the blazing glory of God shines through it just like a diamond, it brilliantly refracts all the colors of the spectrum. Can you imagine that scene? How better to describe the radiant glory of God than that? Most scholars agree that the second stone is the sardius, as it is in our translation, or the modern carnelian. It's named after the city of Sardis near where it's found. The color of the stone, as you can see, is blood red. Now, what is the significance of the the stones, and later we'll see a rainbow of green, Are those just colors? Some commentators argue that the details in this vision, including the colors, are simply meant to give you this overall impression, this big picture of splendor, and the colors themselves have no specific meaning. I'm just not convinced that's true. I tend to agree with others who say that's very unlikely. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste words. And when you look at how these colors express themselves in other places in Scripture, I think there is something being said through the color itself. So what does this blood-red color describing God's person communicate about Him? Well, clearly, it pictures the radiant, brilliant beauty of God's glory, like the diamond does. At the same time, I think there's another picture here. I think it may very well symbolize God's wrath. Remember what's about to happen. Remember this scene. This is not not a scene of the way things always are in heaven. This is a scene in chapters 4 and 5 of what will transpire just before God wreaks havoc on this planet in judgment through His Son. And so 
I think it's likely that this fire, the fiery red stone, and even we saw that fiery red in the picture in Ezekiel when God was, was about to bring judgment into the land. I think that's the picture here. I think it symbolizes God's wrath as it's about to be unleashed. John's vision of heaven's throne and the one who occupies it is certainly a picture of blazing brilliance, of blinding light reflecting through a massive diamond and a blood-red stone. It's a picture of God's glory, but it's also a reminder of the fire of His looming wrath. Dr. Thomas, in his commentary on Revelation, writes this, the same mixture of white light with fire pervades the Old Testament and apocalyptic visions of the divine majesty. The picture is that of God's anger, kindled because of His holy nature reacting to the prevailing sinfulness of mankind, resulting in the judgment that He's about to send upon the earth." End quote. You can see it in the stone, can't you? You can see the picture, the reality, that God, for all of His patience, is also just, he's also holy, he's also righteous, and he must act. It's the picture of the end of John, or excuse me, of Psalm 2, where it talks about kissing the son, lest he be angry with you, and you perish in the way. And he says, do so quickly because his wrath may what? Soon be kindled. That's the picture that we see of God on the throne. Next, John's eyes turn to the magnificent setting around God's throne. We've seen the apostles' invitation to God's throne, the startling revelation of God's throne, and now we see the magnificent setting around God's throne. Verse, beginning in the middle of verse 3 and running down through verse 8, reveals what he heard and saw, not on the throne, not the throne itself, but rather surrounding God's throne. Notice the language, how it changes. The middle of verse 3, around the throne. Verse 4, around the throne. Verse 5, out from the throne, before the throne. Verse 6, before the throne, in the center and around the throne. So you can see that his, his line of sight as he walks through that door set in the sky and enters the great throne room, the massive throne room of heaven, and he sees all of the angels and everything else assembled, his mind or his, his mind's eye goes first in this vision to the throne and then to the one sitting on the throne. And having seen God in all of His glory, he glances down and begins to see all that surrounds God. And as he looks around God's throne, first of all, he sees an emerald rainbow. Verse 3 says, And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Now, the Greek word translated around here can mean encircling. And so some think that this, this is not the shape of a traditional rainbow like you and I think, but rather like a halo encircling God's entire throne. That's possible. But considering the description in Ezekiel, I think it's best to see this as a more traditional rainbow arc or semicircle. Listen to Ezekiel 128 again. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Now, typically, a rainbow consists of seven colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. 
But this rainbow consists of one color in different hues and shades. It's emerald green. There's full consensus on this color. It's emerald green. So what is this? What is the significance, first of all, of this rainbow? Well, at a basic level, it again illustrates the splendor or the glory of God. But from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 9, the rainbow has symbolized what? It symbolized two realities. On the one hand, it symbolizes God's judgment. He brought the flood that destroyed all of mankind. On the other side, it symbolizes hope for those who find deliverance, who enter into covenant with Him. And I think both of those are pictured here. What's the significance of it being emerald green? Well, many believe that it points to God's mercy and grace, a color that at times is connected to God's mercy and grace. So the idea here is that as His wrath builds and is about to be poured out on the earth, this green rainbow is a reminder that His wrath will never come at the expense of His promises to those with whom He has entered into covenant. Aren't you glad? This is a reminder that God never forgets His own, that He will preserve His own from His own wrath. I love that line in the Thessalonian epistle. That's why I included in the song Sheila and I wrote, I love that line that He rescues us from the wrath to come. So he saw an emerald rainbow, a reminder on the one hand that God judges, that God is just and He will deal with sin, but on the other, hope. Hope of salvation and deliverance for those who will accept His offer, for those who would go into the ark, for those in the New Testament era who will go into the ark of His Son. Secondly, he saw 24 elders. Verse 4, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, the picture here is of God's throne raised up, as we saw in Isaiah 6, elevated, supported by, as we'll see, these living creatures with this sort of sea beneath His feet, and then encircling that is this next layer. In a concentric circle, we have these different layers, and the next layer, the next group, if you will, are these 24 elders. Who are these 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones? Well, let me tell you, there are, there are two distinct views regarding the identity of the 24 elders. The first view says that they are an order of angelic beings. Now, those who take this view sort of break into three options. Once you've said, I think it's an order of angelic beings, some say it's an order of angelic beings representatives of the faithful of all ages. In other words, they, they sort of stand in for faithful believers. Others say, no, they're representatives of the Old Testament priestly orders. Remember, there were 24 priestly orders in the Old Testament, according to Chronicles. The most likely view, I think, of this one is the third one, which says, no, it's just a special class of angelic beings of which God only created 24. That is, that is a view that is commonly held by even people we respect and admire. That's one view. 
The second view is, no, these 24 elders are representatives of redeemed humans. And again, there are three sort of subgroups of who these redeemed humans are. Some say they are representatives of Israel. Some say, no, they're representatives of the church. And third group says they are representatives of both. I'm going to argue for the fact that these 24 elders are representatives of redeemed humans and specifically of representatives of both Old Testament believers and New Testament believers. And the way we're going to argue is work our way through this text, because as we see the clues that are provided here in this text, for me, they are thoroughly convincing, and I hope they will be for you as well. So let's, let's look at the clues we have here as to who these 24 elders are. First of all, notice verse 4, around God's throne were 24 thrones. What does thrones imply? What does God's throne imply? What did we just see? Ruling, reigning. So that means whoever these elders are, they are engaged in ruling and reigning. Scripture nowhere describes angels as ruling and reigning. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 says they are servants of the redeemed. But saints are often described as ruling with Christ. Uh, ruling with Christ. Listen to chapter 2, verse 26, to Thyatira. The Lord says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him, these are saints, I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Go back to chapter 3, verse 21. He who overcomes, again, believers, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. That's those who've been redeemed. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests, and they will reign. Go over to chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So, no record of angels ruling and reigning. Lots of evidence of believers ruling and reigning. These 24 elders sit on thrones, symbolizing rule. Look back in our text, and you'll see in verse 4, we read, And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting. Notice the word elders. The Greek word elder simply means to be older, or in some cases to be old, but it, it can just mean older. This Greek word is never used of angels anywhere in Scripture. In fact, it's really inappropriate for angels because angels don't age. It's always used in Scripture of older men, the elders of Israel, and the elders of the church. That's it. That doesn't fit angels, but it does fit if it's relating to believers because you had elders in Israel 
and you, had, you have elders in the church. Look at verse 4. It goes on to say, they are clothed in white garments. Now, that can be true of angels. John 20, verse 12, for example, John records at the resurrection there was an angel in white. But in Revelation, white garments most frequently describe the saints. In chapter 3, verse 5, the believers in Sardis are in white garments. In chapter 3, verse 18, unbelievers in Laodicea are urged to come to faith and receive these white garments from Christ. And in chapter 19, verse 8, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, Christ's bride will be clothed in fine linen, bright and clean. Again, this one could be angels, but most often in Revelation, it is the saints. Verse 4 goes on to say, and golden crowns on their heads. God never promises angels they will receive crowns, and Scripture never describes them as wearing them. But believers are described this way. By the way, the Greek word translated crown here is the word stephanos. It's the, it's the wreath crown that was given to winners at the games. It's not the diadem that Christ himself wears. Instead, it's a stephanos. It's a, it's a, re, a reward for a race well run. This was the crown Christ promised faithful believers in the church in Smyrna. Look back at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the Stephanos, the crown of life. So when you put all of the evidence together, I'm convinced that the 24 elders are not an order of angelic beings, but represent believers. So that raises the question, why 24? Well, 24 often represents a larger group in Scripture. For example, in 1 Chronicles 24, ironically, there are 24 officers in the sanctuary representing the 24 courses of Levitical priests. In 1 Chronicles 25, there are 24 divisions of singers in the temple representing the people of God singing together. So the 24 elders are representatives of a much larger group of redeemed humans. But again, that raises another question. Who exactly are these believers that the 24 elders represent? Possibly, they're only New Testament believers. That's a view, again, that some, some scholars and, and teachers that we respect would take, that these 24 are only New Testament believers. However, I tend to think that they represent all believers of both Old Testament and New Testament. Think about this. Twelve represent the leaders of the twelve tribes of Israel, which in turn represent all true believers in Israel. Even though they're not part of the rapture of the church, their redeemed spirits are already in heaven at this point. The other twelve represent the twelve apostles, which in turn, represent the New Testament church. And if you think I'm sort of making this up, I'm not. Look at chapter 21. Revelation 21 tells us that when it comes to the construction of the new Jerusalem, the capital city of the new earth, notice it has in verse 12, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates 
And names were written on those gates, which are the names of what? The twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. Look down in verse 14. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on those foundation stones were written the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So, to me, when you see that, it meshes very well with the 24 elders that we have met back in chapter 4. So, these are gathered around the throne. Just think about that for a moment. If, in fact, as I believe and I hope I've convinced you, these 24 elders represent us, that means we're there. We're seeing what theologians call the beatific vision we're seeing the glory of God as John saw it. We are am amazed, captured in rapt wonder as we see the glory, the blazing, blinding, brilliant glory of God refracted across heaven in all the colors of the spectrum. Well, let me finish with just some basic implications of what we studied tonight. These just jumped out at me from just the verses we've studied together. First of all, heaven is more real than you know. This planet seems real, doesn't it? But it's one day going to be destroyed. 2 Peter 3.10 The entire universe will be uncreated according to Revelation 20 verse 11. But the heaven where God dwells is eternal. His throne is unshakable. This is reality. Secondly, God is more magnificent than you know. He's more magnificent because of His unlimited sovereignty, because of His incomparable glory, because of His approaching just wrath, and because of His matchless grace. He's more magnificent than you know. Thirdly, the future is more certain than you know. The future of the world only includes those things that God has determined must take place, that it's necessary to take place. Can I just tell you, when you read whatever your news source is, just relax. The future is more certain than you know. Number four, grace is more amazing than you know. The 24 elders represent believers just like us. In other words, we, you, believer, will be there. You will see what John saw. And not just for a brief time in a vision, but in person forever. Number five, Christ is more worthy than you know. He's the one and the only one who made it possible for sinners like us who should be incinerated in the presence of a holy God to live with Him as His children. And number six, the Gospel is more valuable than you know. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ, listen, what on earth, what is it that you're after in this life that will even come close to satisfying your soul like God your Creator? He's offered to you in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You can know Him. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can enter into relationship with Him as Father if you will simply repent of your sins and put your faith in the work of His Son.
in his life, death, and resurrection as your only hope of being right with God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father but by me. The end of this letter is an invitation. Come, come. Whoever wants to drink from the water of life, let him come. Let me say to you, come and drink. The gospel is far more valuable than you know. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed, and that was part two of his series, He is Worthy. Tom will have part three next time, and we do hope you'll join us then. You know, in a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at the Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's all at thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.